take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bob read earlier in the service the historical account of Jesus' resurrection. And we're going to look to Paul this morning for some thoughts on how we should apply the resurrection, how we should find implications for our own existence, especially as believers for the resurrection. It's almost certain that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on April 3rd, A.D. 33, which means that he rose from the dead on April 5th of the same year, A.D. 33. We often think that skepticism about the resurrection is something that's unique to our time. We have uh, scientific proofs that have reigned as the final arbiter of what we believe during our day and in a post-enlightenment world. And, and it makes us think that common skepticism about the resurrection is something new. But if you'll look down in verse 12... There's a, a sentence that should uh, uh, arrest your attention. There's a question that Paul addresses that ought to get our attention. He says in the middle of verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 12, How do some among you, some Corinthians, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is only 20 years since the crucifixion and resurrection. And already up in Corinth, as the faith begins to expand, people were hearing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and were actually asking, he's writing to a church. People in the church were actually saying there was no resurrection from the dead, nor will there be a resurrection from the dead for any of us. Now, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the familiar story of Easter. Most people know of it. But the real question is, do you believe it? Do you believe in the physical, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth? It's not unusual for people to have a very distant, sort of disconnected belief in Jesus and disconnected belief in what the cross did and accomplished and a disconnected belief in what the resurrection did and whether or not it actually happened. It's not unusual for people to, to believe that the resurrection was nothing more than Jesus recovering from his injuries. Uh, we call this the swoon theory that he was beaten up and tortured very bad. Obviously the, the uh, uh, injuries from the cross would have have rendered him to appear dead. They buried him unwittingly, not knowing he was actually still alive, but succumbed to his injuries in the coolness of that stone grave and came back from being passed out. Others, though, hold to an idea that his rising was, was not real and not bodily, but it actually was a figment of the imagination of the apostles and disciples. Even up to and including a mass hallucination where people thought they might have saw Jesus alive from the dead, but in reality it was just a hallucination. It was mythical, it was spiritual, but not literal, real, bodily resurrection. The question before you and the question before everyone as they look to Resurrection Sunday on this Easter morning 
is what do you believe about Jesus' resurrection? What do you believe about what the Bible says happened after Jesus was crucified, laid in a grave, a stone rolled over it, and three days later came back to life? Do you believe the biblical testimony or do you disbelieve it? Do you believe the biblical testimony or do you reinterpret it to mean something other than a bodily, real, historical event where Jesus rose from the grave? Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written to him. It's actually can be a bit confusing Paul wrote them a letter to which he refers to in 1 Corinthians. They write him a response with questions back, which we don't have access to. Paul then writes a response to their questions, which is what we have in 1 Corinthians. Then there was another letter that Paul wrote called the severe letter that he references in the book of 2 Corinthians, making 2 Corinthians actually the fourth letter. But all we have is the, the second and fourth letter, which we call 1 and 2 Corinthians. Now, if that's confusing enough, just go with 1 and 2 Corinthians and we'll be okay. The book of 1 Corinthians, though, is Paul's response to questions that the believers at Corinth had about the Christian faith. They had doctrinal questions. They needed doctrinal clarification. Now, as you know, if you look at a map in the back of your Bible, the, the city of Corinth was situated at a very strategic point in Greece. It actually, if you can imagine an hourglass where the, the mainland of Greece comes to a pinch point and then comes back uh, to Sparta or the Peloponnesus at the bottom, there was a pinch point there with the Aegean and the Ionian Sea on each side. And two seas came together and two land masses came together and Corinth was right at the crossroads. The problem with the Corinthians was they were confused and they were contaminated. They were confused about doctrine, they were confused about uh, uh, theological truth, but they were also bringing the contamination of worldly lives into the Corinthian church without repenting, without turning from their sins. And so the bulk of the book of 1 Corinthians is correcting their doctrinal confusion and rebuking and correcting their behavioral contamination. They were living in ways that showed contamination of the world. They were thinking in ways that revealed doctrinal confusion. They'd written Paul, again, a letter uh, that revealed questions they had, not only about theology, but even about historicity. Several times Paul references the fact that they had written to him with the phrase concerning the things or concerning the things that you have written. For example, in chapter 7 verse 1, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1, now concerning the things sacrificed to idol. This was a question, idols, they, they had a question about that. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. It's kind of a, a, a revelation to us that these were questions that the Corinthians had that Paul was now using this letter to answer. At the head of the list comes a question that rises to the surface, probably the most important question that had been raised to the Apostle Paul by the Corinthians. And we find it in chapter 15, I read it a moment, ago, a moment ago in verse 12. Paul says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, that's the message Paul gave them, 
How then do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There's the question. At the heart of this section, all of the, the, uh, the, uh, the verses in chapter 15, Paul's desire is to compel and convince the Corinthians that there was indeed a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and consequently there will be one for you and me in Christ's resurrection himself becomes the foundational bedrock proof for the truthfulness and veracity of the gospel and the only thing on which our hope for this life and the next is based. Again, our generation is not the first to have difficulty believing that Jesus literally physically rose from the dead. I was listening to the news this morning as I was driving into the, to the church building and was hearing a pundit talk about the fact that, uh, of how wonderful it is on this day to remember Jesus' resurrection from the dead because it gives us all such hope. Now, on the level, that sounds fine enough. But why does it give us hope? This text is going to tell us it's because it shows us that that was a part of God's economy, God's theological inner workings in the, in the mysteries of his will to provide forgiveness for sins to those who cry out to God and those who repent. Let's briefly listen to Paul then as he describes and discusses the importance of the resurrection. The power of God in raising Jesus from the dead and God's promise that he will one day raise us as well. This is going to be a really high altitude flyover of the first 28 verses of this text, but it's also going to be a little bit more of a, of a, a snorkel than a scuba tank uh, view. I want to stitch some of these verses together to give us what Paul intends this, this passage to do, compelling reasons to remember that the resurrection was a certainty. Our outline will follow this way, four essential certainties about the resurrection. Very simply, four essential certainties about the resurrection. And when I say the resurrection, I'm grouping together the resurrection of Jesus himself and also the hope of the resurrection of saints and the certain resurrection of even those who disbelieve the gospel and will be raised to judgment. The first is in verses 1 to 4. The resurrection is a gospel fact. The resurrection is a gospel fact. Paul says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Now whatever comes after that statement is important. Paul, the great apostle, is about to outline for us the essential facts and the essential realities contained in the good news of God, the saving message of Christ. I make known to you the gospel. If you want shorthand for what the gospel is, look no further than these first four verses. This is an important place in the Bible where under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul will simply and briefly outline the gospel for us. He continues on. The gospel which I preached to you which you also received, 
in which also you stand. There's a, there's a load of, of uh, meaning in those little phrases. Paul had been there. He had preached to them the truth of the gospel. They had heard and responded in faith and repentance. And they're standing firm, even as he writes this letter. At least most of them are. By which also you are saved. This has eternal consequences. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What would cause the Corinthians to have a faith placed in the gospel truth that would lead that to a vain faith and ultimately a faith that would not be salvific, wouldn't save them? We're going to find out in the following verses it would be rejecting the notion of the resurrection. That's how they could have believed, possibly in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that what uh, importance what I also received. In other words, what I'm telling you is what I've also believed myself. This is nothing new. This is nothing novel. This doesn't come from me. This is not independent of God's purposes outside of my pen, but it is the gospel I received and which you must believe as well. Then notice there are three essential facts bracketed by the phrase, according to the scriptures. That would be a worthy study to see how the gospel was foreshadowed in the Older Testament to bring all of the nuances down to the very crucifixion itself in the Old Testament. He says, according to the scripture, that Christ died a real physical death. Now, that is important because many during that time were beginning to propagate the fact that maybe he just passed out and the coolness of the cave, as I said, woke him up. He truly, really died. But it was also a theological reality. He died for our sins. This is, this is so important because ultimately, in a few verses, we'll find out he was raised for our sins. He died for our sins, was raised for our sins. He died, listen, so that we would not have to. He experienced the full and furious pointed wrath of God, his Father, on him at the cross so that we would not have to endure the wages of our sin, which is eternal death. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Secondly, we see that he he was buried. Why does it say that? Why does it say he was buried? To prove how dead he was. Now, the Romans would have been uh, responsible for taking him off the cross. The Romans would have been, soldiers would have been responsible for verifying that he was dead. And they were experts in crucifixion. They were experts in executions. They were experts in, in feeling for pulses and listening for breath and listening for heartbeats. Rest assured, he was dead. How dead? Buried dead. That's how dead he was. But then we find out that he was also, thirdly, raised on the third day. According to the Scriptures. Paul does not provide the Old Testament prophetic proof here for Christ. He merely alludes to the reality that the details and the prophecy and the promise of the gospel were according to the Scriptures. Here's the climax point. Jesus rising from the dead in verse 4 was as sure a fact as his verified death. It's a gospel fact. You must realize that he died, 
that he was proven to be dead, and that he rose from the grave. Those are the historical, factual points of the gospel reality for him paying for our sins that you must believe. Paul believed it and passed it on to them. It's a gospel fact, the resurrection is. Secondly, the resurrection had corroborated proof. The resurrection had corroborated proof, widespread proof. Now think about this for a moment. If someone told you today, this afternoon, that they found out and heard about a man who had actually died, put in a coffin, buried in a cemetery, they had his funeral, they walked away, and three days later they just had lunch with him, you'd be suspicious. You would ask, no doubt, for proof. Give me some proof. Paul provides it here. He says to the Corinthians, he appeared, that's alive after crucifixion and burial. He appeared to Peter, to Cephas, and then the 12. Now, a lot of people get tripped up. You know, was this the 12? Did he appear to Judas? Or, or was this uh, uh, the, uh, Paul or the added? The 12 was just a designation for the disciples. It's just the 12. He also appeared specifically to Peter. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. That's important. Not 500 people individually, but 500 people saw the risen, resurrected Jesus at one time. Some actually say this was a mass hallucination. Josephus, the Roman prisoner of... uh, recording the history of the Jews, actually says that Jesus rose from the dead. 500 people witnessed it. And if that's not enough, remember, this has only been 20 years since Christ's crucifixion, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. There were people who saw Jesus alive after the resurrection who were still alive. Others had already died. Perhaps there were some even at Corinth who, because of the diaspora, the the, the fleeing of persecution, had gone all the way north to Corinth. Twenty years later, some were still alive. Some, though, had already died. Paul reminds them that there were witnesses of Jesus alive after being dead and buried. 500 of them. It would be very hard to argue or dispute so many credible witnesses. I love verse 7. Then then he appeared to James. Why is that there? We, we have to use a little bit of speculation here. If we put some scriptures together, James, we believe this is the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. From Mark's gospel, we already uh, looked at earlier in our study of Mark, his brothers and sisters, his half-brothers and sisters, didn't believe in him during his, his life. Church historians tell us, and early church fathers inform us, that James, his half-brother, became a believer because he saw Jesus alive after being buried. This seems to somewhat corroborate that and prove that. I love the fact that he shows up to his half-brother and says, it is me. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, 
as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I think this means that Paul lamented the fact that he was saved too late to be one of the twelve But he did meet him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus in his bodily, resurrected, glorious form. So much so that like John, when he saw his resurrected appearance, he fell down as a dead man. Paul saw Jesus alive. Then he talks about himself, lest they say, Paul, can we have your autograph for for showing us that, that you saw Jesus? He says, I'm the least of the apostles. I didn't live with him and, and walk with him for those three years. Not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And if you go back to Acts chapter 8, he was on the way up to Damascus to round up Christians, to bring them back to stand trial and be executed in Jerusalem because they believed the gospel. But, verse 10, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He was so faithful to stand for Christ after he met him on the road to Damascus. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. You know what he's saying in verse 11? It doesn't matter who delivers the good news. What matters is the good news. It doesn't matter if the, if the apostles, if it was one of the 500, if it was James, if it was someone in Corinth who delivered the gospel to you or me. It doesn't matter as long as you believe the message. The point in these verses, verses 5 through 11, is that Paul says, I know some of you are doubting this. There are are witnesses to seeing him alive after he was confirmed dead by the Roman soldiers. A third essential certainty about the resurrection is in verses 12 to 19. And this is really important. This is the climax, the apex of this passage. The resurrection makes salvation possible. The resurrection makes salvation possible. These next verses are the crux of his argument. Now, he says, verse 12, If Christ is preached, if you hear the good news of the gospel, that he has been raised from the dead, now we're back to our question, how do some among you, why do some people say there's no resurrection from the dead? If the gospel message includes his being crucified and being buried and being raised from the grave, how, why can any of you possibly augment, diminish the gospel by taking away the resurrection? Paul identifies and confronts the skeptics of that day who were challenging the facticity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the concept of Jesus being the hope of us rising from the dead in general. I was reading this week uh, the four accounts of of Jesus' resurrection and, and it just dawned on me I wonder about the Sanhedrin, the people who were responsible for for sentencing Jesus to die. I wonder how well they slept in the coming weeks and months, knowing they knew that he had risen from the dead. They tried to cover it up. That would have been a threatening and a haunting and a terrifying reality. But for those who believe, it's our salvation hope. But... 
He goes on to argue. Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, he goes to this, this idea, what if no one would, would ever rise from the dead? So he uses the fact of resurrection in general to prove Jesus' resurrection. Then he's going to use Jesus' resurrection to prove resurrection in general. He goes back and forth. What if there's no resurrection of the dead, verse 12? Not even Christ then has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain also. Hear what he's saying? If you don't believe in, in being, if in life after death and being raised from the dead, that's anyone and everyone one day will be. If you can't believe that fact, then you can't believe that God would raise Christ. And if you can't believe that fact, then you've believed in vain. Your faith is useless. That's quite a statement. To have a gospel without the resurrection is no good news at all. To have a gospel without the resurrection means that there is no gospel. Oh, we often accent the cross and well we should but as we'll see in a moment the cross was not sufficient to finish the work of salvation the resurrection went hand in glove with it verse 15 moreover if we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Here he's going back with the concept of resurrection in general and the fact that they've preached that God raised him from the dead. If we've done that and God didn't do that, then we've made God out to do something. He didn't do the ultimate blasphemy, Paul says, would be to claim that God, God raised Jesus from the dead when he actually didn't. False witnesses were, were to be executed, were to be stoned, Preaching Christ was raised from the dead, if God did not do it, would make Christian preachers liars and worthy of stoning. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised in general, if there is no resurrection, which will happen to all, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this. Your faith, the end of verse 17, is worthless. You are still in your sins. Any preaching of the gospel, any sharing of the gospel, any witnessing that does not climax with the fact that Jesus not only died for our sins, but look at that text, was raised for our sins is no good news, is incomplete. You're still in your sins, Paul says, if we don't see Jesus out of the grave. It was the verifying fact that his death for sins was indeed efficacious. It caused the effects that God wanted to. Then he goes on, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ have perished. He says, if there's no resurrection... If there's no forgiveness through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, then those who have died, our friends and family who have fallen asleep believing in Christ, they're done. They, they just cease to be. They perished. Verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be 
pitied. What a thought. If our faith doesn't include Jesus rising from the dead, if our faith doesn't include the hope of us rising to him and with him because of him and our own resurrection, if that's not true, people should feel sorry for us. They should look at our faith and say, what foolish people to say no to pleasure, no to sin, no to the, the, the joys of this world that would lead us away from God. They have been unbelievable uh, uh, deniers of pleasures for nothing. All of our moral efforts would evaporate in pity. Those poor, stupid Christians who have denied themselves so much, who have looked to this world to be, to be denied in worldliness so much. Feel sorry for them. They're missing out on life because they believe the gospel. Paul here anchors the legitimacy of the Christian faith to the resurrection. Think about that the actual believability and legitimacy of the Christian faith, Paul anchors to the resurrection. Forgiveness of sins is based on the resurrection. Hope in the next life is based on Christ's resurrection. Hope for our friends and family who love Christ is based on the hope of Christ's resurrection. It's all anchored to that. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith and faith in him is worthless. And even more, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we have no hope for the forgiveness of our sins. A message of the cross without Christ's resurrection, again, is an incomplete gospel presentation. So make sure when you're sharing the gospel with others that you get to the point that not only did he die for our sins, he was raised for the forgiveness of our sins We've talked before in, in our study of a question that I learned from a, from a theology professor of mine who said perhaps the most important question that anyone can ever ask and answer is this. Where are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth? Where are his bones? I'm sure many of you saw on one of the... Uh, cable channels just a few years ago that they found an ossuary. An ossuary is a bone box which, uh, in which um, the, after the body had decomposed, they would take all the bones, collect them, and put them in a small box that was uh, uh, no longer than your femur, the longest bone in your body, and they would place them in that. They found a bone box that, based, that said simply, Jesus, the son of Joseph, and assumed for the whole world to believe that that was Jesus of the Bible. Can I just say that if they're right, our faith falls apart. We know, we know where are the bones of Jesus Christ. You know where they are? They are in his resurrected body, seated at the right hand of the Father, where even at this moment he prays for the saints. He's alive. The resurrection then makes salvation possible. And fourthly, verses 20 to 28, the resurrection vanquishes death. 
It should be self-evident, but Paul makes the obvious even more obvious. The resurrection, resurrection vanquishes death. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. A statement of fact. A statement of theological conviction. A statement of, of preaching gospel fidelity. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The first fruits of those who are asleep, those who are dead. Not only has he rose, he gives us hope that we won't deteriorate in the grave and that's the end. And then he goes back to the same place that he takes the Romans in Romans chapter 4. A comparison of Adam and Christ. For since a man came, since a, by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What a hope. We sin because we inherit Adam's sinful proclivity and nature and we are born with a stiff arm in God's face all of us all of us are born leaning toward sin and away from God but just as we inherited sin and sinful desire from our common father Adam in Christ all who believe will be made alive they will come to life after death in a resurrected body because of Jesus. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Firstfruits is interesting. If, if you go out to an apple tree and you see uh, apples start to, to form and bud on the tree, there's a pretty good indication that the apples will soon fill the tree. Christ was the first fruit. He was the first one to rise from the dead, which gives us hope as well. Jesus, first fruit of the resurrection for his time in history and subsequently this resurrection is available, made available for all humanity from Adam on down who would place faith in God's means of saving them through the gospel. Look at a phrase, a little phrase in verse 23. It's, it's actually perhaps one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible, certainly in the New Testament, which describes a believer. Those who are Christ's. Do you see that? They're Christ's. Those who believe the gospel belong to Christ, adopted as sons and daughters, brought in as brothers and sisters, co-heirs to reign one day with him. Those who belong, those who are Christ's. Isn't that precious? Those who are Christ's. Then comes the end, verse 24. When he hands over the kingdom to God, the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority, we find out this rule and authority is right now under the temporary ownership of Satan and his minions in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. But he'll take it back. 
He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now, we typically think of demons and Satan and the enemies of the cross and unbelievers, and all that is true, but look at the ultimate enemy that he vanquishes. The last enemy, verse 26, that will be abolished is death. Then quoting Psalm 8, 6, He has put all things in subjection under his feet. That includes death itself. When he says all things are put in in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put expected who accepted who put all things in subjection to him. This is this is incredible theological logic. If he puts all things underneath the rule of Christ who earns it by who he is and what he has done, and all things includes people and enemies, it also includes the threat of death itself. When all things, verse 28, are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. This is beautifully, wonderful, blended theological Trinitarian language. You can see this actually, it's confusing to us, it won't be one day, in that when you get to Revelation chapter 4, God is sitting on the throne. And then in chapter 5, The scroll, the title deed to the earth is given to the Lamb who is on the throne. There's a Trinitarian bifurcation that comes together in perfect worship of the three in one, one in three Trinity. I I don't suppose or presume I can explain all the nuances of that, but what a glorious God we have, the one in three, the three in one. Now, just for a moment, sneak a look down the page at the hope that Paul gives us beginning in verse 51. I tell you a mystery. We will not all die, stay dead, asleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable, this temporary, must put on the imperishable, the temporal puts on the eternal, so that this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have been put on the imperishable, this mortal will have put on, the, on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, listen to this, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he mocks death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren. What are our, what's our takeaway? Here's the takeaway. Here's Paul's takeaway. Based on Christ's resurrection, based on our hope of resurrection, based on the reality of believing the facts of the gospel, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Remember this, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It will all one day be worth it.
Why? How can we have that assurance? Because Jesus Christ is not dead. He's alive. I get chills. I'm so moved when I read in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. John, the best friend of Jesus, who at the Last Supper laid his head on Jesus' chest in loving adoration. John, who is described as the one Jesus loved, is perhaps his best friend on on the planet, this side of the resurrection. That familiar love that John and Jesus shared, the familiarity that John had with Jesus, he sees when he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos, the resurrected Lord Jesus in his full glory, and he fell down as a dead man. Jesus says to him in verses 17 and 18, I am the living one. Listen to this. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Paul was on trial for his very life before the Jewish leaders, and he synthesized and summarized the charges against him as this, Acts 23, 6. I am standing here in defense of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He did the same thing before Festus and Felix and Agrippa. He did the same thing on, Acts, uh, on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. Listen, friends, don't fall into the skeptic's trap who propose theories like the swoon theory, the stolen body theory, the wrong uh, 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 grave theory, mass hallucination theory, and the mythology of memory theory. Some people think the disciples remembered him so strongly they thought he was alive. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection in space and time, in fact, in history, received by faith, is the very essence of Christianity. Christianity lives or dies on the basis of Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. Your eternal soul rests on whether or not you believe that. This is not like being an adherent of the Flat Earth Society or those who question whether or not we landed on the moon. But some people treat the idea of the resurrection as people who believe something fantastical like that. Don't be surprised if people treat you as odd for believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. But don't be surprised if they find in you intrigue, curiosity, and hope because you believe in your bodily resurrection because Christ offers it to you in the gospel. To life, everyone will rise from the dead to judgment or to life. April 5th, A.D. 33, Jesus came back to life 
from the dead. Today, April 12, 2020, the question before us is, do you, will you believe it?